Hello everyone and welcome to this latest Norton Rose Fulbright Financial Services Split the Difference podcast. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Hurst and Hannah Meakin, partners in our London Financial Services team, Anna Carrier, a legal consultant in our Brussels office, and Florian Nagelkirk, a partner in our Amsterdam office. In this episode, we're going to focus on the post-Brexit landscape and equivalents. Let's start with the UK and EU Memorandum of Understanding on Regulatory Cooperation in Financial Services, which was signed earlier this year on the 27th of June. Jonathan, could you start by reminding our listeners what the MOU does and what it means for UK financial services? And then perhaps, Florja, you could chip in from an EU perspective. Yeah, no problem, Simon. Hello, everybody. So what does it do and what does it not do, I think, is the best way of looking at it. I mean, what it does is it provides a framework for the two sides to to communicate with each other in a sensible, rational and civilised way. So it actually creates a a, financial services forum, so to speak. It creates various framework aspects of the bilateral exchange of ideas. It talks about implementation of international standards. That's all good stuff. Importantly, two key things that were part of the earlier negotiations. Number one, it protects the autonomy of each side in terms of developing its own law, and that the EU is particularly concerned with that. And secondly, on the other hand, it tries to create a framework where there is a degree of certainty about changes so that all those original concerns, which many will remember in the market space around, you know, if there were an equivalence decision, would it be withdrawn, you know, without any notice, etc. Hopefully that's gone away. So that's that's the sort of positive side. And there's lots of warm words in there around cooperation. What it does not do is to create itself an equivalence framework. It doesn't do that. It was never intended to do that. And so I think to summarise it, one can be over cynical about it. It is definitely a step in the right direction, but equally, it is very limited in its practical impact in the market. That's going to depend on what the two sides do, if anything, in relation to either cross-border business and or equivalents. Thanks, Jonathan. Florcha? Yeah, no, well, I completely agree with Jonathan um, in that sense. It's it's nice, and I think it formalizes the fact that over the last couple of years, different member states have had discussions with uh, the UK uh, authorities, and this sort of formalizes it. Um, that's good. I think it is a bit more clear also now to the market uh, what indeed the state of the MOU is and what the cooperation entails. Um, but yeah, practically, it doesn't add that much, I think. Okay, thanks both. In the absence of the MOU making much difference in practice, let's take a moment to now consider equivalence. On the UK side, for example, Section 3 of the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018 incorporated into UK law all equivalence decisions taken by the Commission that had effect in EU law as at the end of the Brexit transition period. The Commission, on the other hand, has adopted very few equivalent decisions, and it feels, to me at least, unlikely that we will see more in the future. The Commission has adopted, however, a temporary equivalent decision in respect of UK central counterparties, CCPs, which is set to expire on the 30th of June 2025. Hannah and Anna, what are your thoughts on the current state of play on equivalents and other arrangements trying to provide for cross-border cooperation? Perhaps, Hannah, you could start. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Um, I mean, I think on the UK side, as you say, the UK authorities have 
uh, put in place a lot of different arrangements to try and make sure that there was a smooth transition. Um, and many of those arrangements are still in place, but kind of moving into their next phases. On the, um, I guess, on the kind of the MIFID side, we've obviously adopted a number of the important equivalence decisions that were already made by the European Commission, and those continue to to stay in place. But the the real gap, I guess, is the um, the equivalence decisions in relation to third countries being able to provide investment services to uh, persons, clients in the EU. Um, and, and it doesn't look like there's going to be any kind of quick changes or sudden movements on that uh, in, the, in the near future. And I think you know, that was one that obviously a lot of clients were, were waiting and hoping for, um, but I think have now essentially got used to not being there and therefore having to put in place um, essentially bilateral arrangements if they want to, if UK authorised firms want to be able to do business in the EU. On the, um, the clearing side, we have seen, um, again, with the way it works in the UK is we've got this temporary recognition regime in place for the third country, including European CCPs. Um, and that the, the uh, kind of length of time that stays in place has been extended. Um, in the meantime, the Bank of England is working through this process of actually recognising these CCPs under English law. Um, and then we've also got this runoff regime in place. And I think that, you know, that is, those arrangements are, are really important. But one of the things that we've started to see happening in the last few months is the, uh, some of the um, bases on which those temporary recognition uh, arrangements are in place are starting to be undermined because they do rely on a number of conditions. Um, so for example, uh, CCP not withdrawing its application or notification, um, and also some of the um, uh, other uh, kind of arrangements between member states in the UK or third countries in the UK um, being in place, especially in relation to uh, anti-money laundering requirements. And when those um, when those arrangements start to be undermined, I think it does start to become quite complicated in terms of the impacts for for firms. So it's maybe a little bit clearer if you're a clearing member or a trading venue relying on one of these third country CCPs that's got this temporary recognition. But for the impact on clients is a little less clear. It becomes less clear if you're trade if you're clearing non-mandatory clearable derivatives, for example, or even other types of instruments. Um, also the impact on whether you've got a client or an indirect client in the UK versus the EU. All of all of these uh, kind of changes raise questions that I'm not sure to what extent they were necessarily all foreseen um, when these arrangements were put in place. But they are um as I say, do you kind of have some complications? I think uh, maybe Anna is also kind of seeing something similar on the EU side. Thank you, Hannah. So yes, I think in, on the European side, things are also complex. And, um, and I think it is fair to say that equivalence remains a hot topic here in the EU. And this is not just in the context of EU-UK relations, but more broadly. So just by, just by way of very, very quick background. I think there are about 10 legal acts in the EU that provide framework for various equivalence decisions. And um, there will be uh, just over 20 plus areas where such equivalence can be issued. But um, in the context of the EU-UK relations specifically, I think the only equivalence decisions for the UK that the EU has issued is under EMIR, and that concerns this um, UK um, access to UK CCPs. And this is 
even that is time limited. So that um, in the current situation is that the that the recognition decisions for UK CCQs are in place until June 2025, and the EU is currently updating its legislation um, with an attempt to create a mechanism to bring more euro-denominated clearing into the EU uh, CCPs. And this um, debate is ongoing in the context of the so-called Amir 3.0 debate. It's highly politicized, and it is very um, difficult at uh, this stage to predict how it will conclude. But um, in terms of the European track record for issuing equivalent decisions um, more broadly, I think it is um, quite mixed. So in a sense that there are areas where the EU has been a bit more generous, uh, to put it this way, than others. So for example, um, capital requirements regulation, well, EMIR also, um, given the number of jurisdictions that receive those um, um, decisions. Um, but um, on the other hand, and um, in the, the area where the legal framework provides for possibility to issue equivalent decisions, but there are none, is what you mentioned, Hannah, is this NEFIR uh, market access framework for third country firms. So this is really clearly one outstanding with, with no such a equivalent decisions issued to date, regardless of the time lag. Uh, since the application of NAPIR. But um, interestingly also, and going back to equivalence decisions and those related recognition decisions for third countries and CCPs, uh, for example, it's not just equivalence of the country's relevant financial services, legal and supervisory framework that matters. And you, Hannah, mentioned those um, complex arrangements that go beyond that. Um, and over, over recent weeks, we have seen a number of MCCP um, recognition decisions being withdrawn by ESMA because of the countries being listed on the European Commission's list of the high-risk countries for anti-money laundering and counterfinancing of terrorism purposes. So the most recent decision um, concerns South Africa, but earlier this year we had seen a similar decisions being issued in respect of the United Arab Emirates, including the Dubai International Financial Center. So really this compliance with the broader um, AML CTF legislation is a very important element for consideration in the context of equivalent arrangements and, and, and clearing and arrangements for voting. Thank you, Anna. Okay, um, Hannah and Florja, uh, taking a step back now, what impact is all this having on market infrastructure and access to it? Perhaps, Hannah, you can go first. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think it is a good question. The um, I think there is a, a kind of tension between the commercial desire to have the best liquidity on your trading venue, which generally means being able to provide access to as many participants as possible, um, but also obviously having to comply with different uh, legal requirements in different countries which in some cases are preventing you from being able to provide your service to participants in particular countries and obviously the, the UK EU um, angle be, being an example of that in, in some cases um, and, and so I guess we see we have seen trading venues trying to deal with this in different ways um, so it, interestingly from a UK perspective you've got this difference between uh, regulated markets and investment firms um, on the regulated market side, we've got the ability to have a recognised overseas investment exchange in the UK. And that's something that a number of the uh, European uh, trading venues adopted. Um, but if you are an investment firm, then you don't have that option. And so you're looking at, uh, for example, either um, if, if, if it is possible to use it, the overseas person exclusion, but that isn't possible to use for trading venues in all situations. Um, and so otherwise you're left with having to get authorised in the UK. And 
in theory, it may be possible to have a branch of your trading venue, but actually in many cases, the regulators have required that actually you set up a subsidiary. And so by setting up that subsidiary, you've automatically fragmented the liquidity pool and you've got a number of practical considerations to deal with. So, for example, uh, having to essentially kind of recreate your trading venue in a second country, um, for example, having to have a, a new rule book, having to work out which of your participants need to move on to the UK venue versus the European venue, all those types of, of considerations. So it, it's and actually at the end of the day, <laughs> operating um, a trading venue doesn't necessarily look like that different. Um, when you're doing it in, in one country versus several countries and the way that many of these um, organizations that operate trading venues are set up is such that they can leverage uh, resources both you know, human and uh, technology um, from different jurisdictions to be able to work in a quite efficient way um, so it, it's it, it's kind of in some in some ways a bit sad to to see that that fragmentation really resulting from these considerations of um, kind of almost like nationalistic um, uh, ways of thinking, um, but obviously that you know that is where we are at the moment. Flotcha, what do you think from your perspective? Yeah, so so in the Netherlands, so in Europe, uh, it's now sort of every member state is allowed to think and decide how to deal with third countries like the UK uh, in in their own way. So there's there's not a framework yet uh, to be um, to be taken into account. So for instance, in the Netherlands, there is a dispensation possibility for a trading venue from a third country, uh, which means that you need to apply for the dispensation with the Ministry of Finance and the AFM is looking and considering the application and provides advice uh, to the Ministry of Finance. And what they do is that you need to explain how the rules for a, a regulated market um, is taking into account in, in the UK then as well. Uh, and it's sort of it comes down to sort of an equivalence decision by um, the Ministry of Finance and the AFM then. So the, if if then the rules in the UK are deemed to be, um, well, uh, serving the, the interest uh, um, of, the, of, the, of the financial market in the Netherlands, um, well, to the same extent as the Dutch rules for a regulated market, then they, they can grant you the dispensation. Uh, we know that some other EU member states have sort of similar um, possibilities as well. But what you do have is that you don't only have that dispensation or exemption or how do we call it in, in that member state. So that still means that you have to go through all the other member states to see whether or not you are allowed to provide um, access to your platform um, under under well, under those um, that member state rules. So it does make it more difficult um and and indeed less efficient and when brexit happened um we know that regulators have looked at the fact that whether or not you could have one liquidity pool but in the end like hannah described um the regulations uh, didn't really allow for it so in the end it was decided that that was not possible um well whether that was really not possible or it was a bit political that's of course a different question um, but yeah, so that's that's sort of the state where we are, and the same goes and not only for training venues, but also for investment firms. Every member state has their own uh, own rules in 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 place. What we in the Netherlands have in in 
uh, included uh, around Brexit is a possibility for an exemption for traders, dealers on own account uh, from a third country. You don't need to have an, uh, a license in place anymore. So again, that is only then for the Netherlands. So if you are active in, in, for instance, in France or in Germany, you need to check whether or not that is the same there. Okay, thanks, Florja. Um, as my final question, uh, I just want to look forward to some horizon scanning. Uh, where we are at the moment, do you think this is the likely state of play long term? Or are things likely to change in the future? Anna, perhaps you could lead us off on this one. Sure, I'm happy to. So, well, the way things stand at the moment, I think it's this kind of um, division along this nationality, nationalism and, um, and, and, and kind of protectionism to some extent lines is probably going to continue um, to, to what extent I think we're yet to see. But um, on the European side, I think it was all, it, it's already been um, articulated that in terms of the long-term planning, the EU has established a broader objective of what it's called open strategic autonomy. And this also covers um, financial services. So the way in which this open strategic autonomy is supposed to be um, achieved over time is um, in respect of financial services, is by strengthening the international role of the euro, is by um, creating even stronger, more competitive and more resilient um, European financial, um, financial services sector, which also includes um, avoiding risks arising from excessive reliance on third country financial um, market infrastructure and financial institutions. So this is, again, brings us back to the Emir um, debate that I've mentioned earlier, um, and, and also strengthening the overall resilience of the financial services sector. There's, there's various uh, points to that. But perhaps just to commenting on in a bit more detail on this, um, uh, on the uh, on, on practical measures, how this could be achieved in the context of this uh, ongoing Emir debate is um, that it's, it's, there's a clearly articulated political objective in the EU to limit dependence on UK CCPs and uh, for the purposes of euro clearing. And um, UK CCPs have a market share of more than 90% of euro denominated derivatives. So there's, um, so, so there's um, a reason for that. And in, in line with those, um, this proposed way forward, um, the, 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 the commission has um, announced that this proposed and, and the main objective of the new review proposal is to increase compet the competitiveness of the European Central Clearing Framework and in particular vis-a-vis -vis the UK CCPs. So again, this brings us back to this very lengthy and highly politicized debate on the location of the um, of the Euro clearing, which intensified following the UK's um, departure from the EU. And there are various measures that the Commission has proposed to mitigate that um, one of them being a highly controversial proposal for a um, financial and non-financial counterparty to have an active account with the EU CCP and clear at least proportion of such trades in the, such a CCP. But there are strong divisions um, uh, between the co-legislators concerning this, those proposals and also the industries have been involved. So we are yet to see how this debate continues, but this is just an example of how, how, um, how, how this open strategic autonomy is intended to be achieved in practice um, on the level of financial services legislation. Thank you, Anna. Uh, before I hand over to Jonathan and Hannah, uh, Flodra, do you have any other comments from an EU perspective? Um, well, there are, of course, a couple of things to consider uh, that 
you now see in place. So for instance, we have the um, the pilot regimes, which I think uh, the UK has as well, but of course, Hannah will look uh, talk about that a bit. Um, we have the pilot regime now in the, in the, uh, in the EU, which um, is interesting to consider uh, from the tech side of things. Um, we know that um, there are indeed now discussions going on, uh, and the fact that the pilot regime has been um, proposed is useful because of the fact that you see that there are, of course, technological developments and that e-regulation doesn't always fit. Um, so that's that's good to see uh, how, how that works. And um, we now have, of course, also in relation to consumer um, and, and the retail proposal, the EU retail proposal, some rules in, in play, which I think are inspired uh, uh, from the channel. So I think it's, it, is, it is good to recognize the fact that um, the continent is also looking still what is happening in the UK. Okay, uh, Jonathan, Hannah, UK views? Um, well, look, it's a big subject. I, I think all I would say, and I'll be brief, is that the UK, as everybody knows, started with a very liberal approach to these things. I think we've got a number of equivalence assessments under UK EMEA, um, which, you know, were temporary, technically speaking, but, but thus far have not been removed. And they all made sense from a rational perspective, both for the CCPs and for margin and for treatment of on exchange as genuinely on exchange European platforms and, and, uh, and for the group exemption as well. None of that with the exception of the CCPs was reciprocated, that has left a very bad taste. And I think the realities are that life has moved on quite a lot in the UK. And if you read, not so much in this area, but you read more generally the Treasury's um, consultations, we're in a different world now. And I think the question really, and it's it's a crystal ball thing, is can, can we now move in a more rational direction? Not that the UK will become a member of the single market again, but nevertheless, that there will be some kind of sensible um assessment based on rationality on both sides or, or will we not and i don't know the answer to that that may depend on more macro political factors but in the market space as has been discussed by, by the rest of the team it's absolutely critical because it is in nobody's interest to see all of the business go to new york um or singapore which is you know to some degree what may may be happening so i think that to that extent there's a common interest in having a rational kind of structure but unfortunately uh, the lesson of the last few years is that may or may not actually impact on policy making, but that's that's beyond us as lawyers, I think. Hannah, over to you. Yeah, well, I, I think it's interesting the maybe the uh, kind of a difference between the policy making and the actual kind of getting on and regulating, because I think we are seeing quite a few areas where actually the UK and the EU, yes, they're doing their own things in their own interests going forward. But there are some very similar ideas, in some cases, essentially the same idea. And you can see that on both sides of the channel, we're learning from each other and we're developing you know, what, what works for, for each other, kind of by looking at what, what each other is doing. I mean, Fulcher mentioned some of those examples earlier. Um, and I think, you know, the, the regulators clearly are talking, continue to talk to each other. And, and I think, you know, also firms obviously have their interests, their, their their subsidiaries, their branches on both sides of the channel. I think it will continue to be a um, a kind of parallel evolution. Okay, thanks, Hannah. Uh, my thanks to Hannah, Jonathan, Anna, and Florcha for sharing their thoughts today on this interesting topic. And that concludes this bit difference podcast. 
previous editions of Split the Difference can be found on our main podcast webpage located on the Regulation Tomorrow blog. We'll also continue to track developments in the marketplace on the blog. And for those researching markets related legislation, don't forget that there is a very useful library located on our markets webpage on the Northern Rose Fulbright website. Many thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.